You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set up to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 346. I'm your host, Andreas Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hallo! Hey, Eastern, hey, Eastern guys, how are you? Good. All Not good? Bad. Yourselves? Good. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Any future trips coming up, Andras? Yes, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> but also so, fortunately, uh, but yeah. also fortunately. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are also good trips fortu- coming up, right? Fortunately, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. But I think Pontus referred to me, my working, working tours, which I'm not particularly happy about because it, it, it screws up my whole real life. I mean, <laughs> my real life is being a skeptic and being home and being with my loved ones yeah, yeah, as opposed yeah. yes. to being with... I'm spending more time with people I don't even know than with anyone else. So, yeah, but that means I have a job. Uh, yeah, and I understand you're going boating next week. Is that right? Boating. Yes, I'm. I'm going to be on a tour to Sicily and southern Italy. Okay. Okay. Good. Enjoy that then. Awesome. Poor. Yeah, I'll try. I'll going try. On I'll vacation try. All the time. All so right. that means that uh, next week I will not be joining you. Yeah, I, I give a break to everyone who's listening to this, right, and, right. and your, your ears can have a rest. Uh, okay, we'll have to do without you then. <laughs> but. I have uh, good news. Yeah. Uh, I was especially happy about the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine, or Physiology I why. or Medicine this year. Yes. Yeah. Well, the, the winner was a Swede. That, that's part of it. It was uh, Svante Pebu. This is how you pronounce his name. Yeah, I, I'm sure most <laughs> of our international listeners didn't know that. And this is one I don't need to be... You don't have to send in your corrections, your pronunciations. I'm pretty sure that's how it is. Svante Pebu. Because I've, it, not only is he Swedish, but I have heard... I, I, I don't know the guy, but I know of him since way back. And I've heard him. He's talking on Swedish uh, science radio all the time and, and things like that. And he's dealing with things that I think is very... Interesting. So I was very happy. He is the founding director or one of the founding directors of the Department of Genetics at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany, Annika. Mm -hmm. Ooh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that was founded in 1997. So it's always fun when when the Nobel Prize goes to someone you know of and have heard of. And uh, as I said, in a field of research that you... Or at least vaguely understand. I, I, I know what it's all about. So I think that's cool. He has done a lot of research into the DNA and the genetics of early humans and other ancient populations. He's actually considered the founder of a whole field, which is called paleogenetics. So he's looking into the DNA of very old bones, like 50, 60,000 years old bones, and he has mapped the full genome of the Neanderthals. And yes, it's supposed to be pronounced Neanderthals with a hard T. Isn't that right, Annika? Yes, because it's referring to a valley. (laughs) It's the valley. So don't forget about the H. That's just for for English people or English-speaking people. It's Neanderthals. Uh, he also genetically discovered and identified a previously unknown human species, the Denisovans. Denisovans? Denisovan. Denisovan. Denisovans. They're all dead anyway, so they don't care about the <laughs> And he did it just from a single small bone of a finger. But because you're looking at the DNA, they can tell this is a different beast. I almost said a different beast, but a different kind of human. I did say it. Yes, (laughs) I did say it. (laughs) So it's very cool. It's given us a whole new look at our ancestry because he has also shown that Neanderthals and modern humans mated and got offspring uh, because we, most of us living today have a few percent of Neanderthal DNA in us. And as he famously put it, and I think I love this, I'm going to quote him now. The interesting thing is not that we had sex with the Neanderthals, because of course we had. The interesting thing is that we could have children (laughs) with Neanderthals. And yes, he proved that we could and we did. So so that's (laughs) how it is. (laughs) Just a small footnote. Interestingly, his father, Sune Bergström, was his name. 
also received the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for discovering prostaglandins, which I have no idea what it's all about, but I'm sure people understand that. that well, was I, back... think, I think I know what it is. <laughs> oh, please enlighten us. What is it? Well, I think, like this is on the fly, but I think it is in sperm. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I think. Okay, write in and correct us if we're wrong. Yes, yes. Please write in if you know more than us, then <laughs> let us know. Which is likely, yes. Very likely in that regard, <laughs> yes. <laughs> But it's interesting because I don't know about other Nobel Prizes, but in physiology or medicine, the two of them are the only father-son couple who have won the prize. Both of them won the prize. Also interesting is that he didn't even grow up with his father. But that's a totally different story. But so, I, so maybe it's all in the genetics of that line of people that they are very, very smart and they all win the physiology or medicine prize. Or it's just a coincidence. But anyway, I was happy about that. <laughs> That's good news. Yeah, it is. And I'm I'm so happy about uh, learning how to pronounce the name of the guy. Because uh, I was wondering, I had no freaking idea. <laughs> but for Europe and European science, this week seems to be a very important one. Obviously, the Nobel Prize is probably the greatest ever prize given out for any kind of uh, scientific achievement. When it's Europeans that are getting the prize, it's important. And every day over this week, there will be an announcement made as to which category got whom as the laureate. As of the day of this recording, which is Tuesday, the Nobel Prize in Physics has been already announced. It's a very intriguing thing that a team of three researchers got the Nobel Prize for. That is quantum entanglement. So let me say first who the, the laureates are. First of all, Alain Aspect from France, who is a 75-year-old researcher affiliated with the University of Paris-Saclay and École Polytechnique Palaiso. And another, well, not very young guy by the name John Closer, who's from California, and uh, Anton Zeilinger, who is attached to the University of Vienna. Both are over, well, closer to 80 than, than 70. So that's a bit of a lifetime achievement on a certain field as well. Mm -hmm. So what is it that they got the Nobel Prize for? First of all, it's in quantum mechanics that they have been doing a lot of research into. In a nutshell, it deals about the, the different states of sabotage particles and how they behave and the word quantum refers to the small packages of quantitative things like energy that can alter the state of and the, the behavior of these particles. This is a field that has been growing since the beginning of the 20th century and it's, it's achieved a lot of good things. But obviously we know that pseudoscientists tend to use a lot <laughs> that word quantum because it sounds very, very scientific. And there is one thing that has been already hijacked by pseudoscientists, and that is in the word entanglement. Quantum entanglement is a real thing, but it has been hijacked. So we need to be careful with that. But they got their Nobel Prize into research into quantum entanglement. That is something that Albert Einstein called spooky action at a distance. Ooh. And uh, it's Halloween soon. Yeah, it's Halloween soon. So the thing is that the different quantum states of certain particles, the research focuses mainly on the particles of light, which are photons, they have quantum states as well. And the quantum states can be aligned even when they are at a very, very large distance. What distances are we talking about? Well, recently, um, Chinese scientists used an experiment where they could do that from a distance of thousand kilometers wow which is absolutely amazing and mind-blowing this has a lot of very good ideas growing out of it from uh, teleportation to star trek standing yeah star trek yeah so sending sending information at a large distance without having to deal with the limits of the speed of life etc etc and uh, quantum computing is another thing that this could be built on which is also a developing field of great interest internationally also when it comes to computing another part of it could be encryptions so 
So using encryptions that could definitely not be hacked because the quantum state can be altered at a distance without anyone being aware of what's going on at the two ends. That opens up a lot of great opportunities and technological developments and scientific research is going on into that. So it's more of a not a specific achievement, and one of them said, uh, Anton Seilinger, who does his research in the, at the University of Vienna, I'm quoting his announcement at a press conference, and I quote, This prize is an encouragement to young people. The prize would not be possible without more than a hundred young people who worked with me over the years. End of quote. Ah, nice of him. Yeah, it is very nice of him. So they are the ones getting the Nobel Prize itself, but it's always a team of scientists that work behind these amazing pieces of research. So yeah. congratulations. Yeah, very good. And that, I should add to the Svante Pebo thing as well, that he didn't do all of that himself as well. He had teams yeah, of behind not. him, and that's always <laughs> the case. Yeah. And with regards to the coming announcements, by the time this goes out, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, Literature and Peace will probably already have been announced. But the piece, probably not, because the piece price will be announced on Friday, but uh, later during the day, so 11, uh, around 11 a.m. Central European summertime. Yeah, so uh, stay tuned for all of those. Congratulations to everyone who has been awarded. So yeah, far. and I wanted to congratulate another team for mm, having okay. a cool new uh, leader, and that is that the ISS has the first uh, woman as their commander. Oh, yeah. And uh, you, a woman from Europe as well. Yeah. <laughs> right. So so the first thing I, I'm, I'm thinking is, yeah, great. And then I'm thinking, what? Not until now. Yeah, what just like, what? She's the first? What? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, and interestingly, she did make spaceflight history by taking command. I didn't even say her name yet. She's called, and Andra, she can correct me, she's called Samantha Cristoforetti. Well, you couldn't go wrong with that. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess she's Italian. Then. She is Italian, yes. She and, is, um, yeah. And is the first European woman in charge of the orbiting lab that we always call the ISS. Yeah, so as long as it's still there. It was increasingly being talked about that it's going to be abandoned. And of course, the Russian module may leave on its own if you <laughs> believe things. Uh, let's hope they keep it alive a little bit uh, mm -hmm. longer. Mm -hmm. That would be good because I think we all like looking up and seeing it fly by if, if you can. Yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah. think they're talking about dismantling. But you can never know because I heard just today that there's actually talk about making a new trip to the Hubble telescope and fix that so that it can stay in orbit for a few more years. And I thought well, that I was think a, a few more decades they're talking about. Oh, really? Really? So, yeah. Yes. Okay. But I thought they were sort of abandoning it now when the, when you have uh, the James Webb Telescope. Yeah, but this will be taken care of by SpaceX. So it's a SpaceX mission again, which is how uh, Cristoforetti went up to the the International Space Station as well on the latest mission that she's on. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's not her first mission. What I got found surprising about her was that it's it's only her second mission. Mm -hmm. I had the impression that she's been up there for like three or four times at least because <laughs> she's such a phenomenon. She's mm -hmm. such a great... She tweets a lot. She talks to the press. She talks to people about it. So she's a bit of a superstar of space exploration and I really love that. And mm -hmm. and what I absolutely love as well is her hair. Yes. When <laughs> the announcement of her taking over as as commander <laughs> looked like it was absolutely amazing. It was like, you know, when in cartoons <laughs> someone puts their hand into the wall socket and gets an electric shock and the hair goes boom <laughs> this is what she looks like it, okay. it was definitely on purpose i really love it <laughs> <laughs> that is what happens to hair without gravity i guess yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> but i'm pretty sure that it required a lot of handling as well to spread out that evenly it was really <laughs> hilarious <laughs> it looked pretty awesome yes <laughs> yeah All right so congratulations to Samantha Cristoforetti as well. Yes, exactly. <laughs> We've covered a lot of uh, science and exploration kind of stuff, but uh, we should probably start focusing on what we offer in the show, which is a skeptical show. So why don't we start with 
This Week in Skeptical History, also known as Trish. Alright, so, this week marks the, well, 309th birthday of a French philosopher and writer by the name Denis Diderot, and he was born on the 5th of October 17. 13. So I'm really hoping that my math is correct on that. 309, right? I, I, I don't know. If the <laughs> listeners disagree, then send you all your complaints to andrash at the <laughs> Yes, yes. Oh, my. Oh, the death threat, as I announced at the, at the end of the show. Uh, so, yes, uh, he was a French philosopher and an, a writer and author as well. And it's exactly how he was known in during his lifetime. He wrote plays and the greatest project that he was involved with, actually, he was a co-founder of it, was called the Encyclopedia, or in French, I'm, I'm going to attempt at a French pronunciation of Mais the oui. original, which is Encyclopédie. Encyclopédie, oui. Encyclopédie. <laughs> so he was the greatest contributor and chief editor, especially after Jean-Laurent d'Alembert decided to leave the project after a couple of years. Then he stuck with it. I mean, uh, Denis Diderot stuck with the project, but it was his most important project throughout his life, probably. And why it's very important for skeptics in general, but also a couple of us uh, who are involved with the currently available best encyclopedia ever, which is Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. So Annika and I being members of uh, Guerrilla Skepticism on Wikipedia, led by the, the amazing Susan Gerbic. So it was the first ever attempt to gather the knowledge of humanity, all the knowledge of humanity that was currently available at the time and do that in a secular fashion, which was another attempt that had not been made before. Mm. And obviously pissed off a lot of people. Yeah, no, <laughs> especially no the clergy. Allowed, and that was uh, probably not the people didn't react too happily about that. Yes, and it wasn't going as far as to saying that God doesn't exist, but it discussed a couple of religious topics and applied a very critical approach to them. Ooh. So, uh, yeah, it had almost 72,000 entries, which was at the time, well, absolutely mind-blowing, really large number of articles. So did he have a team to do this or did he do it all Yes, by of course. Yeah, of course, of course. Even today, 72,000 entries would be, you can't yes. do it. Yeah, yeah, well, you, you can't do it on your own. However, Diderot did a very large chunk of it. So he wrote about one-tenth, so 10% of the articles, mm. which is absolutely amazing because it's it's a hell of a lot of work. So he was a great con the main contributor as well. When it came to the topics that he covered, he was um, mostly focusing on economics and philosophy, politics, religion, and religion was one of his pet topics. And that is nicely shown by one of his works, but was not even published during his lifetime. In 1747, he wrote The Skeptic's Walk, Promenade du Skeptique. Wow. And the structure of the book was that a deist, an atheist, and a pantheist had a dialogue mm -hmm. on the nature of divine entities. Right. Like like a classical Greek book would be put out. Like I, I guess yes. Plato and those guys, they'd like to do that. You have a dialogue between fictional characters. Yeah. And in that, well, we, we all know that there's going to be an argument from design on the deists' arguments, right? Mm -hmm. So that was the deists' standpoint. But the atheist, he was very straightforward in that. If we want to know the universe, get to know the universe and learn about it, there are more better ways, like natural philosophies, the principles of physics, chemistry, matter and motion are the ones that can best explain the universe. And that is a very important point of view, but it was sitting in Israel's all the way to the end of his life and further because it was only published in 1830, mm -hmm. which was like 50 years after his death. <laughs> very interesting. 
Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, he was an amazing guy. He was very poor most of his life, with the exception of the last couple of years. And that was because his works and his writings were very much beloved by Catherine the Great, ah. who was a great supporter of his work. Catherine the Great, that's Russia, right? That's Russia, exactly. Katarina. So, <laughs> Katarina. <laughs> Catherine the Great. Well, we have to mention there that Catherine the Great was not Russian by origin. Mm. She was born in Prussia. Yeah, that's so, why I knew her. She was born mm-hmm. Sophie Auguste Friederike von Anhalt Serbst. <laughs> ah, that's <laughs> correct. Gesundheit. That is correct. That is correct. And her birthplace is in current day Poland. Yeah, Stettin. <laughs> a really interesting European connections there. Mm-hmm. But uh, she was open to including a lot of uh, the European culture into the Russian Empire and the, the Russian court. So when she learned that uh, Diderot had financial difficulties, she decided to fund his works. And the way she did that was that she bought all of his library and appointed him a caretaker for the remainder of his life. Mm. She gave him all the money he asked for, and uh, yeah, from then on, he was well taken care of by Catherine the Great. So he felt obliged to visit her at some point, and there are obviously rumors, because she was well known as a very hedonistic (laughs) kind of person, but uh, there is absolutely no evidence supporting the idea that uh, they had anything else going on apart from a friendship and some work relationship. Well, so what if they did? That's Yeah, who cares? Who cares? A lot of people uh, appeared in her bed anyway, so... And a lot of people didn't dare say no when she asked them. So uh, um, apparently Diderot could take that distance. So um, that was a good thing. However, they had very heated discussions. And apparently we know this from Catherine the Great's letters. Whenever Diderot wanted to make a point, he just slapped her on the thighs. Oh. (laughs) So that was a very, very... Well, madame. And uh, she complained about this to one of her ladies in waiting. So, <laughs> really? so that, that was really amazing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. So uh, without going into too much detail about um, Denis Diderot, I think he deserves to be remembered by skeptics. And because he was probably the greatest, at least one of the greatest figures in the French Enlightenment. Mm. Yeah. Very cool. Denis Diderot, born on the 5th of October 1713. All right, that brings us to that part when, uh, well, we we talked about uh, secularism and the separation of church business and other kind of business. So uh, I'd like to know if Pontus has something to poke the Pope for this week. I think we will leave him alone this week as well. I know there is some things... he's so-called diplomacy efforts towards Russia is failing, but I think it's not enough to bring up. I'll save that for for another week. Mm. Okay. Mm. Are you being? Are you going weak on him? No, um, no, it's, it's him. I, I mean, think he is being a bit weak, and he hasn't done too much for over the last couple of weeks. So uh, oh, okay. we'll wait until there's something <laughs> to report on. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> lately you've become very, very forgiving <laughs> towards his, <laughs> his doings. Okay, but that means that we are moving on to the news. Yeah, and I want to talk about the dark side of social media. Aye, aye. It's really bad. There was a teenager called Molly Russell, and she died in seventeen. Well, so far, so bad. But this case actually came to a conclusion this Friday. And it's groundbreaking in the way that it actually blames social media for her death. The thing was that Molly Russell was a depressed 14-year-old girl. And she was, as they call it, trapped in social media and Pinterest and Instagram by cruel algorithms. Because she was recommended AI-powered stuff that was frankly said disturbing absolutely Mm -hmm. disturbing images video clips and text uh, concerning or concerned with self-harm suicide depressing stuff some of that even 
got provided without Molly even requesting it. During the court case, people even actually said that they were disturbed by it. So no, like, and to imagine that a teenager watched these, pretty bad. And mm. they had representatives of Meta and of Pinterest there. Uh, Pinterest actually even said, yes, that's, that's definitely not. They said, quote, the type of content that we wouldn't like anyone spending a lot of time with. So to give you an idea, um, Pinterest sent emails to Molly like, 10 depression pins you might like or stuff like that so it's really it's really not good and it's groundbreaking in a way that it is saying like this wasn't a suicide this was social media to blame and mm -hmm. um to be to be clear it wasn't cyberbullying or anything it was really the ai and even after molly's death the ais were still sending her stuff so it's yeah. it's yeah this is this is can really show us how important it is that a children and teenager can't go into social media where like completely unprotected but it also shows us how important it is for social media representatives and responsible people to change things so that for example like i know that there are social media providers that if you are depressed they will tell you like oh do you maybe need help do you maybe need to call this number also Yeah, that's something that would be needed, I guess. So this was the result. Was there was an in some sort of investigation? Yes, or what exactly. What was it that concluded? Now, what, what was that? Yeah, it was it was an investigation. So it was an inquest. They called it. But it wasn't a trial. Nobody was. No, no, on it trial. wasn't. It no. wasn't a trial. But they really made it clear that it wasn't suicide. Aha. Uh -huh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah, and it really shows how AI can be. Like we always think, like, oh, AI is the future, but. Mm, I might also be have to be taken with a grain of salt. Yeah, and this was already in 2017. That was in 17, exactly. And yeah. I have to say, like that, for example, I, that's nothing in like related to that. But I, for example, um, uninstalled Instagram for quite some time. And to which point Instagram started to bombard me with emails of like, "Hey, you're missing this. You're missing that. Maybe you want to look at that. Maybe you want to look at that." And yeah, to imagine. If I would be a, a teenager who also would be depressed and then you want to protect yourself by an uninstalling things and then they bombard you with emails, yeah. just like, mm. uh, <laughs> you, uh. you can see how, how easy it is to get trapped in these things. Sure. Yeah, yeah now I brought, got brought the mood down uh, successfully. Right? <laughs> yeah. No, but it, but it, it, it has further implications as well. That's why it's probably very important to talk about these because it's it's probably not an individual case. There are a lot of other times when this just doesn't get out because it doesn't end with a tragedy. And yes. This is why it, it remains hidden from plain sight. And also there are implications that concern us skeptics as well. Because a lot of the times when fear starts growing in a person, they tend to assess different situations, different claims differently. So that will change in their mindset as well. This is why I think it uh, connects very well to what you just discussed, what researchers at the University of East Anglia did. And they published a, research, a piece of research in the journal Education and Information Technologies just recently about assessing how the different actors in the societal framework and socio-ecological framework have to understand how young adolescents and uh, children growing into the age of adolescence show digital resilience. And digital resilience is a phrase that is used for something that you not only you survive, but also learn from adverse contents and adverse experiences online and in the digital world. And the approach that is new about their research is that they try to put this into a framework like a socio-ecological framework instead of focusing on the individual child and trying to come up with ideas as to how to save them from these adverse experiences but it's almost impossible because there are certain factors the certain factors being the individual themselves the home environment, the community, and society as a whole. So 
these are certain levels and the experiences that they come across differ at different levels. And there are four domains of these uh, these experiences as well. One of them is learning, learning about the stuff that's online, recognizing that it's an adverse experience that I'm going through, managing that and recovering from the experience as well. And some of these have, I think, important aspects from a skeptical point of view as well. For example, when recognizing something for what it is, that is a very important part of our skeptical work as well. Uh, like like identifying pseudoscience, identifying manipulation and manipulative techniques. And basically what you explained as well, Anika, is a, a way of manipulation. So they did. They conducted interviews with the children, 59 of them altogether, and they conducted telephone interviews with parents, carers and teachers of these children as well, basically bringing up the same kind of attitudes, trying to figure out what the environment provides the children with. Uh, what am I talking about? First of all, what they can come across. So what is free for them to access? What help or kind of advice they can get from the environment and uh, how the environment provides opportunities to cope with it and to recover from certain adverse experiences. So uh, I think this is very important. The research is, is very limited, obviously, and the paper mostly consists of transcripts of the interviews, but they are very interesting. I mean, the answers there and uh, what the questions were, like, um, what would you change about the internet? How would you approach this or that certain topic? What do you feel when you come across this kind of content? So these are the things that they try to assess and put together with uh, the analysis of uh, uh, social psychologists. I'm not saying this is conclusive. I'm not saying this is um, provides us with the basics for how to address certain issues, but it's definitely a point in the right direction. And what I mean by that is that they try to gather all the information from a socio-ecological environment instead of just focusing on their individuals. So I'm uh, deliberately trying to avoid the word holistic <laughs> because that's, <laughs> that's very much of a, of a pseudoscientific term by now. But uh, it's a bit of a holistic approach to the problem and we would need to keep an eye on these kinds of research as well as skeptics, because we will definitely come across a couple of things that we can use in their findings as well. Yes. Sure. Yeah, very important. Yeah, they are. I'd like to go back to uh, follow, do a follow up on something that we talked about before. Uh, it's a mm -hmm. story that have, we have mentioned before. We have sometimes talked about euthanasia in the past, and uh, that is, of course, the practice of intentionally ending someone's life to relieve pain and suffering. And, and the story that I want to refer back to is that I mentioned a Swedish medical doctor called Staffan Bergström, who helped a man ending his life in 2020. This man had ALS, was very sick, and he was scheduled to go to Switzerland for his euthanasia. Uh, it was all approved, all legal and, and all that, but it couldn't be done because mm -hmm. of the COVID restrictions and he wasn't allowed to travel at the time because I guess he could have caught COVID on his way down to Switzerland. That's a bit ironic, but you understand. There were no planes properly to take him there. So this Swedish doctor, Stefan Bergström, instead supplied the patient here in Sweden with all the necessary things for him to do it himself. So the doctor didn't assist in anything else than just supplying the means, and then he stood back and watched while it happened. Then this doctor, Bergström, he called the police because he is a pro-euthanasia activist, and he wanted to raise the debate about this. The legal process towards him was dropped, as we have reported way back. But the question remained on whether he would lose his medical license. And after over two years, the HSAN, which is the Health and Medical Care Responsibility Board, or something to that effect, of Sweden, they have now decided that he will indeed lose his license. 
for the doctor himself, it wasn't a big deal. He was already retired at the time. He had sort of nothing to lose, but he it's, it's a principle, and he wanted uh, to make sure that this issue is discussed. So he and his legal team is now uh, preparing to appeal. And in a statement, he said, quote, We are well prepared for the next stage of the appeal process and want the case to eventually be taken up in the European Court of Justice for the right of all European citizens to decide on their own death. We want to establish once and for all what is right and wrong. End quote. So this is a complex question. There's nothing simple about this. Could be a bit hard to wrap your head around, but it could be argued that we do treat our pets better than we do our family members when it comes to ending a life with dignity. So it's very interesting to see how this is going. There are a couple of countries, or more than a couple of countries actually in in Europe, where euthanasia is legal, like Switzerland, Belgium, Netherlands, I think Spain has also joined that group of countries. Maybe Sweden will come out of this as well on that side. We will see. Yeah, something we will also see is who will win the Heroes of Facts Award. <laughs> Heroes of Facts, yes. Yes. Well, I like it already. <laughs> Sounds good, but we don't know much about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so enlighten us, please. So yeah, Heroes of Facts is um, an award that is also done by the Golden Tinfoil Hat people. <laughs> Okay. Um, and it's this is a positive award. So, like, think if you think about QED, for example, they give out the Occam Award and the Rusty Razor, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, here they give out the Fact Hero Award and also the Golden Tinfoil Hat. They give the positive award out and nominated are, for example, Information Network Homeopathy, Woo-hoo. Martin Moda, <laughs> and also the GVOP, <laughs> the GVOP. Mm-hmm. Um, GVOP. They're nominated for the category science because they, and I quote, the GVOP has made its mission to promote science and scientific thinking. It investigates parascientific thesis according to the current scientific knowledge and reports publicly and generally understandably about their results. And so on and so on. Like, I won't read it all out, but I think... Anyone who wants to support GVOP, but also other awesome people that also do amazing work like Hoaxilla, Ferngespräch, Anthroblogger, HPD, I'm just naming a few um, German names. Yeah, if you want to support them, just go to the website that we put into the show notes and vote for it. Yeah, right. So... uh... Can anybody vote for this? Do you have to be a German citizen or... Um, As far as I know, you don't have to, no. Okay, good, good, good. Okay. So, and it's it's basically international then? Um, so yes, it's not but the, necessarily... it's completely in, in German. So, like, you, yeah. if you don't know who it is, you can, of course, uh, do it. But it it would be a bit... Um, in Germany, we would say it's a bit <laughs> jokeless then. <laughs> ah, okay. Yeah, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, speaking of interesting votes... <laughs> You probably all heard that uh, four regions of Ukraine have been annexed by Russia in the last couple of days. On the 30th of September, Putin announced that uh, the annexation has happened. So now all of these regions, Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporozhye and Kherson in the southeast of uh, of Ukraine will be considered part of Russia, at least by Russia. At um, least by Russia, I say. <laughs> yes. I, I don't even know if all Russians feel that, because I hear that there's a lot of Russians running away from there as quickly as they can now. Yeah, as well as from the motherland where uh, yeah, they, they, they too. Yeah. fear they, they will be conscripted. So the problem with this is that the whole thing is based on a so-called referendum. Why I'm saying it's so-called, first of all, it's Putin. So democratic principles are not his forte, to say the least. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I, I, I put it mildly. Um he claims, and obviously TASS, Russia's state-owned news agency reports, that the referendum that took place in these four regions, uh, territories, resulted with 97% of the votes in favor of them joining the Russian Federation. Mm. So 97% of the votes. So what happened there? Now, first of all, 
there were moving urns where they could cast their their votes which were accompanied by the military that is a little bit of a push towards not voting no obviously you're very diplomatic again (laughs) yes (laughs) <laughs> so when when it comes to free choice they probably didn't have much of it there was a military presence all over the place a lot of people who were ukrainians in those regions already fled the area the territories out of fear that they would be harmed and um, the other thing is voting took place in a fashion that people were going door to door and trying to pe- trying to get people to cast their votes which is not necessarily the most democratic way of doing so. And polling stations were obviously overseen by a military presence as well. The other thing was that they only had three days passing between the announcement of the referendum and the start of the referendum itself. So all the Russians who were listening to Russian TV, Russian news and all that, they learned about it. But to me, this 97% obviously means that the 3% was only there for trying to legitimize the whole referendum. So that, obviously, if we say that 100% of the votes <laughs> was in favor of uh, these no, no, territories no, no, 97% the is much more plausible. Right? Yeah, there were 3% who could practice their democratic right of saying no. Yeah, and there are a, a lot of other issues with this. No wonder the international community of countries call this a sham referendum. Which is what it is. Of course it is. It is not a real referendum. Putin is just trying to take everyone for a fool. And obviously the issue is now that, that there is still ongoing fight on all four of those territories. But now Putin can claim that these belong to Russia, so it's an aggression. So if uh, Ukraine tries to regain those territories, that will be considered an aggressive move on uh, Zelensky's side. I'm I'm so surprised that he even tries to bother making this look legitimate because nobody can buy this. I I don't see how anyone can not see through this. It's such we could just I I don't know. I'm I'm speechless. I don't know. Yeah. Why yeah, bother? me too. But this is the power of brainwashing. This is the power of propaganda. This is the power. But of it's Vladimir hard to Putin. see how anybody could not see through the propaganda. Well, because you don't consume the same kind of news that a lot of people in Russia do. Probably. You're, you're, you're certainly right. Yeah. So I'm not sure that many, many people who flee the country as of now because of the conscriptions and uh, the call to action, I'm not sure that a large chunk of those people do that out of conscience and not just because they don't want to fight. So I'm not sure those people don't agree with the war in the first place. I don't have I don't have data to support no, that. No, you're you're, you're, but, you're quite uh, right. But, we we, yeah. we don't know, and what we know is very different from what they know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okie dokie. So I read an article in one of the Swedish morning papers a couple of days ago that really shocked me. It was about two journalists that went to Poland to investigate the existence of something called Oknocitia. And as always, uh, feel free to send me your pronunciations because my Polish is non-existent, really. I can say Wrocław, but that's... <laughs> um, and I think that's right. I, I don't but even know. But it took a lot of right. practice and a couple of it years. It took too. weeks. It took weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but Oknocitia, do you know what that means? No. 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 So your Polish is as good as mine. Apparently it means window of life. So this is a window in a building, actually very physically a a window in a building, or a hatch perhaps, where you can leave your unwanted newborn baby. So it's a baby hatch. That is what it is. That sounds terrible. It sounds terrible. That's why I was shocked. But it does exist in Germany too, and I'd much rather have it that way than having them, like having people in danger kill their babies. That's right. Let's come back to that. But according to this Swedish article, there are hundreds of these baby hatches in Poland, and they've all been created since 2006. 
So they're fairly new, new phenomenon as a response to the increasingly severe abortion laws there. And I had really, I had to check if this was actually true. And sure enough, if you Google this, you find that it is true. And uh, on the Polish Wikipedia site, which you can translate with Google Translate, you can um, you can be reasonably sure that Wikipedia is okay for the most part. I mean, it is peer reviewed in a way, and I know that you can't trust everything on Wikipedia. But anyway, this is what it says, and it says that there they well they list uh, sixty nine of these baby hatches in Poland. That is not hundreds, like the Swedish journalist said, but the Wikipedia entry also says that the list is not complete. And there is a call on the page for editors to make it complete. On this list, there are addresses and uh, who, when it opened and who runs them. Of course, it's mostly Catholic organizations that runs them. And I cannot fault them for that, given the situation of the land. But it is still horrific that this is something that a country needs to have. So back to your thing there, uh, Annika, about Germany. I thought at first this could only happen in a very Catholic country, right? But as you say, Annika, no, it's not. Now it'll seem like I get all my information from Wikipedia, but I went to the English <laughs> Wikipedia where there is a, an entry called Baby Hatch. And it lists 22 countries in the world where this practice exists. And uh, for the most part, it is a new phenomenon. Among these countries, of course, there's the US, and it's currently having a huge increase in them, which is due to the recent and, and terrible Dobbs decision by the very, very... I, I don't know. I don't even know the adjective for the US Supreme Court at the moment. It's just a farce. So it happens in Catholic countries. It happens in the crazy US. It also happens in some of the third world countries, like Pakistan has over 300 of these mm -hmm. baby hatches. But here in Europe... Is it only Poland? No, it's not. Even in the EU, it's not uncommon. We have it in Austria, Italy, Belgium, Netherlands, the UK, Hungary. Andros, Hungary, you have those. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, Latvia, Switzerland. I didn't know about that. And as you say, Annika, there are over a hundred of them in Germany. Apparently, you knew about this, Annika. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very naive. I'm, I'm, you know, I thought the world was a beautiful place until I read this, but apparently that's not the case. So my question now is, do we live in medieval times where people either cannot afford or get access to an abortion, or even if they want to give up their baby for adoption, do they feel they have to do so secretly, anonymously? They can't do that openly? Well, and in, in uh, Germany, that's sometimes the case, and around the world. And if it's safer for you and your baby to completely hide the pregnancy and to not be open and outspoken about it and to like put it in a hatch where it pretty much like it gives a, gives an alarm to a nurse and, and they will immediately be cared sure. for. Yeah, that's better than, than, I don't know, being, being thrown somewhere because it's not, because the mother is in danger of her life, you know? <laughs> right. I, I fully agree with that. The thing that I'm reacting to is that why are we living in a society yes. where people cannot have abortions or give their baby away for adoptions openly without having to be scared for their lives or scared for anything. I, I, that makes me really upset. Yeah. Th that's totally unnecessary. We shouldn't have to live in such a society. So it is medieval in a way. This kind of thing was practiced in the Middle Ages. Not surprisingly, given the society, what it looked like then. But the, the thing is that this practice largely went away in the 19th century and it, it wasn't necessary anymore, but now it's coming back. So quoting Wikipedia again, in quote, modern form, the baby hatch began to be introduced again from 1952. And since 2000, it has come into use in many countries, end quote. So this is something that we are beginning to do again because we have to do it. Yeah. It, it's really shocking to yes. me. And maybe I'm just crazily naive and think that we live in a beautiful society and we're not. I don't know. But I, w I was shocked. So um, we are getting back into the Middle Ages, apparently. And, yeah. Um, 
At le- there's, at le- there's at least one country who has actually preserved one medieval baby hatch. Although they call it a foundling wheel because it's more like a revolving door. You put it in and then you just switch it around. <laughs> but it's the same idea. What country do you think I'm thinking of? Hmm. We'll save this as a as a some sort of memento or a thing. It's the Vatican, of course. Come on! <laughs> oh yeah, the, Vatican. the obvious, the obvious. Yes. So they yes. have re- they have they have <laughs> preserved this. They call it the Ruta de Trovatelli because it sounds more fun, more Italian. Italian. <laughs> yeah, Italian sounds, sounds more Italian. Italian but it's, <laughs> But to me, it's like a merry-go-round. You know, you put your baby there and you spin that around. That's the image that I had fun. in my yeah. head. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's the wheel of the foundling. Is the yeah. translation of that? Yeah. I'm told yeah. though that uh, the one in the Vatican, the old one, is not no longer in use. But that's probably because they don't have too many pregnancies in the actual Vatican. It's located in the Santo <laughs> Spirito Hospital, and you can probably go and visit and see it. And I'm I'm told there was also a few others preserved, actually in Italy, maybe elsewhere as well. But this is a medieval practice that was necessary way back when we were uncivilized and barbaric people, and now it's coming back. Mm. I'm uh, appalled. Yes. In Sweden, abortions up to week 18, I believe, is totally voluntary. You can do that. If you want to give your baby up for adoption, you can do so anonymously. You go to a hospital, you deliver your baby, and you you can do it sort of openly but anonymously. You don't have to have a hole in the wall to just get rid of your baby. That is it's crazy. just so inhumane. It it's... is. It is. <sighs> okay. I'll set, try to settle down. <laughs> no, but <laughs> yeah. it's okay to be upset about it. It's nothing, it's not nice. Yeah, and and where else to go on a rent than on a podcast? But I I want to point out, I don't, I have nothing against people who feel that they have to use these things. Mm -hmm. I'm appalled that they need to feel that way. Yes. That's that's what I'm upset about. Yeah, appalled by the people who make them feel that way. Because it's not a river Mm -hmm. or a tree who is making them feel that way. It's other people. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. It's not a river or a tree. It's, it's always That's people, true. yes. It's people. People are so bad. People are the problem <laughs> of the world. Well, yeah. There, there's this yeah, we're not we're not for longer, probably. <laughs> well, there's this saying, homo homini lupus est, which means the human is to the human a wolf. And that's like, yeah, yeah that's not wrong. Oh, I didn't know that one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we are actually like a disease on the surface of, of Earth. <laughs> Mr. Anderson. <laughs> You're a virus. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> Jesus Christ. All yeah. right. That leads very, very far. So <laughs> let's not go down that road. Instead, let's take the blue pill. Yeah. Yeah, let's take the blue <laughs> pill and find out who's been really wrong. Yes. And to find out who's been really wrong this week, I have to tell you something about hydrogen first, (laughs) because we're talking about British Minister of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, Jacob Rees-Mogg. He said... Nice guy. We love him. Yeah, I wondered how long it would take for him to show up in this segment. (laughs) And he said hydrogen could be a viable alternative to natural gas for heating. Obviously, because it's the most abundant element in the universe. Yeah, we have a lot of water. It's an obvious choice. It's an obvious choice. Mm. We have a lot of water. Um, There's still a problem there. And there's a new study out. And it, again, has cast doubt on this governmental claims that hydrogen could be amazing and could be used to heat homes and cut greenhouse emissions. And what I wanted to tell you about hydrogen first is that it's super inefficient. Mm. Hydrogen gas can power homes. We have to talk about two different ways of how to get hydrogen. And the one thing is that you can use fossil fuel to make hydrogen out of that. And that's, of course, pretty shit. <laughs> that seems uh, very counterproductive, yes? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's absurd. 
And that's called gray hydrogen, but there's also green hydrogen, which means that something like a wind turbine or other, other renewable energies, they produce electricity. And then with this electricity, you split water into oxygen and hydrogen. This hydrogen can then be stored in tanks and then be supplied to homes. So far, so good, but... <laughs> no, no, no. Don't do that. Yeah, exactly. The problem <laughs> is that to just use a heat pump is way, way, way more efficient and way better. Just to give you an idea, heating homes with green hydrogen uses approximately six times more energy than just using a heat pump. Yeah. So but it's, it's so obvious. You, that you, energy has to, comes from somewhere. If you have water, which is hydrogen and oxygen, yeah. to split them, just to then recombine them by burning the hydrogen... If you have green energy, use the green energy directly. Yeah, Don't exactly. use it to do something and then reverse <laughs> that process later. Yes. And there are a lot of things that, that people can still research and make more efficient. For example, like solar heating systems, thermal heating systems. I mean, like heating systems that you get through the earth. There are a lot of things that you can still do research on we have laws of thermodynamics <laughs> we can't really use hydrogen for storage because it's so inefficient no storing storing hydrogen is the most dangerous one of the most dangerous <laughs> things that you can store in the because it's highly <laughs> yes in the is, is a good example so uh, highly flammable <laughs> combustible so it, it takes up a lot of energy and, well, it should not be stored for a long time, especially not in large containers. Close to homes, yes. <laughs> close, close to homes, yeah. yeah. So, for not understanding thermodynamic laws and for not knowing his shit while being the British Minister of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, our dear friend Jacob Rees-Mogg receives this week's prize for being really wrong. And that <laughs> is well deserved. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> yes, exactly. He could have received one for just accepting that position. Yes. <laughs> someone, someone who's who's been trained in history and nothing else should probably not run the Ministry of Business, Energy, and Industrial Strategy because it requires a certain level of skill set, uh, knowledge about stuff like energy, <laughs> which he obviously lacks. So yeah, I can't think of anything that he has the skill to run. <laughs> Thank you very much for that, Annika. Thank you. But before we go, the only thing that we need to finish the show on is a quote. Yes, and this week's quote is by Johannes Kepler, German astronomer, mathematician, astrologer, natural philosopher, and writer on music. Writer of music? On. <laughs> on. On music. On music. <laughs> so, like, one oh, of these... Yeah, he theorized a lot mm -hmm. on, on music, yeah. <laughs> oh, and he's, he's like, Sorry. one of these people that just, in German, we call them universal geniuses, <laughs> because okay. they just yeah. know so much about so many things and have so many thoughts about everything. <laughs> He was born on the 27th of December 1571 and died on the 15th of November 1630. And the quote is, I much prefer the sharpest criticism of a single intelligent man to the thoughtless approval of the masses. Hmm. Although I must point out, since his time, we have found out that there are intelligent women as well. <laughs> I, th I, I took this intelligent yes, man in the regards of like human. <laughs> oh, let's do that. Let's do that. Human, as human. a friend is saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's say that. I, what I really like about that and why it's really fitting to these times that we live in is that it's not much of a populist approach. Yes. It's the opposite of being mm -hmm. a populist. Because populists do not like criticism. They do not like even constructive criticism because they don't like to be contradicted. No, it's almost in the definition, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Popular, yes. populist. <laughs> yeah. Yes. All right. So I like that. Thank you very much, Annika. Thank you. I'd like to thank both of you, Annika and Pontus, uh, for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Many, many thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And uh, especially those who support the show as well. We very much appreciate that. And it makes a lot of things possible that could not otherwise be. So many, many thanks for that. Hope to meet 
some of you at least at some of the events that are coming up uh, in the next couple of months yeah but that's the end of this week's show and until next week goodbye tschüss hey doll bis lat This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast.eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. Uh, did I say hey son, hey son? No. See us, Doc. Originally, by the way, she wasn't. Uh, sorry, sorry. Say that <laughs> word again. I can't. I can't. was. <laughs> I hate that. And he gave him all the she, money she he, he asked for. She gave him. Sorry. She gave him. Yeah. She gave him all the money. She, uh, uh, he hit him. So fuck me. I could, I could not. <laughs> okay. 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 <laughs> I'll say that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's.